as a podcast subscriber, you are automatically entered to win the album Twinsman that I reviewed last week with Matt Parker. Um, but I just wanted to let you know that I also dropped the YouTube version of that episode so that you could see all the uh, curves and contours of the board. So go and check that out, and then I'll be drawing a winner randomly on Monday, March 1st. So good luck. Today's episode is with Zach Plopper of Wild Coast, and we're discussing that 30 by 30 initiative that the WSL has been asking you to sign and that many professional surfers have been decrying. It's an environmental initiative that desires to protect 30% of the planet's oceans and lands by the year 2030. What's troublesome about it is that each country, each government, and an endless number of bureaucracies and organizations have a different interpretation for how to protect environments, which environments to prioritize, and some governments don't actually have any plan in place for how to execute any of this. So it's a lot to sift through. Facts are fuzzy because pieces are fluid and changing. And actually, to be honest, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if I misrepresented some of the info in this short introduction that I've already given you. So that's why I'm gonna let Zach Plopper break down all of the details. He is the Associate Director at Wild Coast, a nonprofit with a very simply stated goal, conserving and restoring coastal and marine ecosystems for future generations. Zach is also a former pro surfer. He is a podcast listener who occasionally chimes in to educate me on things that I've discussed on air, or more accurately, he gently corrects things that I've misinformed you about. And his feedback and insights are of course, always welcome. Environmental issues affect everyone and so they are inherently divisive and they're also almost always too complex to ever really understand in the brief quick takes that we often provide here or especially on the grit with Chaz Smith or spit with Scott Bass and even more damage and dissension can be cast on social media where the platform is designed to keep you battling with other people. So that is why we were here today, to kind of unpack things a little more thoroughly. So without further ado, Zach will give you his qualifications and credentials. And I'll just say that my name is David Scales for Surf Splendor, and I hope that you enjoy my conversation with Zach Plopper of Wild Coast. And you try the passenger door. Oh shit, man, it doesn't even work. And you've cried like you've never seen water And come to think of it, I think my dad wanted a daughter and you can find me at the roundabout Wild Coast has entered the chat. We, we, are, in the, we are in the room. How's it going? I'm just in an endless cycle of editing. Yeah, I bet. You got a lot going on. Yeah, what are you up to? Um, took a few days off this week. It's my wife's birthday tomorrow. Good man. Got a few waves here and there. So um, Well, good to finally connect with you face to face. Yeah, you too. Absolutely. I mean, I was trying to think when I first saw your name in a byline, like mm. in a masthead. You mm -hmm. know, um it was a long time ago, which where, give me the whole rundown. Let's give listeners the rundown. We're already uh, recording. So let's give listeners the rundown on your history. Um, yeah. Well, I grew up in, in North San Diego in Solana beach, um, Torrey Pines high school undergrad at UCSD. I got sponsored by red sand when I was like 13 years old, when they were making their transition from volleyball to, to surf and, and beach marauder beach wear. Um, through that started competing and traveling a bit and along that started writing. Um, so I did my undergrad at UCSD, kind of kept writing, kept surfing, kept competing to a certain level, mostly just to get paid, paid trips to, uh, to Europe for a couple, couple four stars and three stars here and there and see the world through, through that way. Um, 
and then took some time off between undergrad and graduate school and traveled some more and did all that. And then went to UCLA, studied urban planning, both at UCSD and UCLA. Um, continued to write, wrote for Transworld for a long time, uh, some stuff in, in surfing, a um, couple European magazines as well. And I wish I did that more, especially now with, I've had a hard time transitioning to the digital age of, of surf literature, um, yeah. although I should write more. And then, and then after graduate school, I got hired by Wild Coast to start our, the land conservation work that we do in Baja, California. So we're just starting to look at, in the surf world, what's known as the Seven Sisters region. So those points of central Baja, it's about a 110 mile stretch of coastline that was under threat from the whole nautical ladder, Escalera Nautica project, which envisioned all these marinas down the coast of Baja, up the Sea of Cortez, and at Santa Rosa Leita, which is a spot that a lot of people know where there's a pretty well-known jetty wave there. Um, there. The idea was to build a land bridge across Baja to the Sea of Cortez, which you know sounded, sounded logical if there was such a demand. And this project really grossly overestimated the amount of people that were really willing to go down to this very remote, remote location to then truck their vessels across. So with that proposal came all sorts of speculation in that region. It was very threatened. Um, and Wild Coast came in with kind of the suggestion of folks like Scott Hewlett and a couple other diehards of that area um, to find ways to protect it from all the craziness that was planned for a really remote wilderness stretch of coastline in central Baja, like the last vast wilderness region left in coastal wilderness region left in North America, really wow. of that scale. And we actually convinced a group of funders in the US that this was a priority area. And we started to get money to start purchasing uh, the points and bays, which are both the most ecologically significant, the most threatened and the best surf spots. So that worked out um, in being able to still pursue my interests of, of wave riding and coupled that with my work and did that for five years. We st it's still an ongoing project. Um, we protect about 38 miles of coastline and it's set aside for open access so people can still go enjoy it, obviously in camp and surf and fish, um, but it will not be developed. And we work really closely with the ranchers and the fishing cooperatives that are there. Um, quick step back, we're a binational organization. So we're a registered nonprofit in Mexico and registered nonprofit in the United States. And about half of our staff of 20s in Mexico, half our staff in, in the US. So a lot of our program staff are really based in the communities in which we work. So it's not like, you know, the gringos coming in and telling people how to, how to protect their land. It really comes from within. And then I transitioned into other roles at Wild Coast. I helped um, get our Marine Protected Area program going in California and then became our associate director. So now I got um, directly support our work from Oaxaca and Southern Mexico all the way up through the entire California coast. So that's the, the quick, um, quick breakdown on, on me and, and, and who, Wild Coast. So uh, who is Wild Coast and how was it started? Right, so we're a 20 year old organization, um, international conservation team founded by Dr. Serge Dedina and Wallace J. Nichols. Uh, Serge is still our executive director today. Um, he's done a lot of writing in Surfer's Journal and a number of publications. He's also the mayor of Imperial Beach. Um, we, our mission is to conserve coastal marine ecosystems and address climate change through natural solutions. And what that looks like is we establish and manage protected areas. So we're an ecosystem-based conservation group. We focus on these large, intact coastal and marine areas. And then we work on policy to strengthen protections in those areas. Uh, and then thirdly is working directly with the local communities as the, the stewards of the resources and wildlife that are there. So the whole Seven Sisters project is one example of establishing a protected area. We work with the local communities to manage that. Uh, we work closely with the Mexican national government to manage all their big marine areas. A lot of them are home to coral reefs very limited capacity to manage these places. Um, Waltulco National Park in Oaxaca is one of them. Uh, Cabo Pulmo National Park in Southern Baja, another. And they'll have some on-site staff, but you know, as you know, the vis visitation to these areas, it's huge. People come from around the world to dive and, and surf in some of them. And so we're working on how can people still visit these areas and have as little impact as possible. 
So we've installed, for example, mooring buoys in some of the coral reef areas. So vessels can tie up to these mooring buoys and not drop anchor all over the coral reefs that they're there to enjoy. Um, down in Oaxaca, we're working on these sea turtle nesting beaches where million sea turtles a year will come and lay eggs, like undoubtedly the most important sea turtle nesting beaches in the world and no capacity to monitor that against poaching or very limited capacity um, or development threats. So we've been able to set aside some of those beaches for conservation. And then in California, uh, working around the marine protected area network that we have, the state managed network that was set up in 2012. Similarly with Mexico, although you think we have a lot of resources in California, there's not a lot of resources to manage that network and to adaptively manage it. So it's, it, you know, we can change rules every so often and what's working and what's not working. Is there enforcement? Who's monitoring? And Wild Coast came in uh, as a really key partner in trying to figure that out. So working with a lot of the fishing industry, the commercial fishermen, wreck fishermen, tribes, um, researchers. And part of that or an extension of that is the conservation of our wetlands, uh, as well as a conservation of mangroves in Mexico. So we have a blue carbon program. Blue carbon is the carbon that's stored in, in coastal and marine environments, particularly mangroves as, you know, tropical mangroves. Um, but in California, that means salt marsh and seagrass. So all of our coastal wetlands, you know, Southern California, you think Bolsa Chica or Upper Newport Bay, San Diego, Santa Alejo Lagoon, San Diego Lagoon, you know, a lot of these are right next to some of our best surf spots. Um, and they're actually carbon sinks. So in addition to all the wildlife that's there and, you know, the recreational value, they actually capture and store a huge amount of atmospheric carbon. And that's an area that we're working on researching with Scripps Institution of Oceanography to figure out how much carbon is stored in San Diego and California's wetlands. Look at what's at risk. So if these areas are to be degraded from development or pollution or sea level rise, that carbon is going to get released into the atmosphere. And California needs to start looking at that. And how are we going to better protect these? Same with mangroves in Mexico. We've been able to protect about 10,000 acres of mangroves so far. Um, in the area that we're working, hopefully to extend that protection is about 38,000 acres. And we've estimated that there's about 20 million metric tons of mangrove of carbon stored there, which is about the average Americans annual carbon emissions um, of about 20 million people. So uh, it's significant. And that's an area that, you know, with climate change and a, the 30 by 30, um, you know, global initiative needs to look at these areas better because pound for pound, acre by acre, they're going to help us the most get out of um, climate crisis. So it's, it's fairly extensive, our work, but it's rooted in coastal marine ecosystems and how do we best protect those places and at a big, big scale. How do you uh, pick projects to be involved in and where does the funding come from? Yeah, so, um, you know, our, our projects, we look at the areas that are most at risk, and we're really open to working anywhere that's in need and that we can bring value to. So we have a lot of experience in the areas that I've, I've been talking about, and we've been able to slowly expand our work to new areas of Mexico and new parts of California. Now we're looking at potentially um, working in Venezuela through our Mexico division. Through our Mexico division, we've worked in Cuba in the past. And our funding is largely reliant on foundations, so private foundations, both in the US and Mexico and even some international. Um, we have some government grants, kind of multi-year government grants. Um, state government in California funds our wetland restoration work, for example, and then private donations as well. So some individual donate, donating. Um, we used to have a big in-person event every year called the Baja Bash that obviously we've had to transition, but we had a really cool um, two virtual fundraisers last year that actually did pretty well. So um, we're looking to expand kind of our individual giving support um, to, to, to support our work. Is the scope of your work limited by funding? Always, but, um, you know, we can affordably look for new opportunities, especially okay. in kind of this more virtual area that we can kind of we have a broad enough network around the world of partners that we can communicate and, you know, slowly start to cultivate new projects. And then once we have an idea of what we could do, we'll go after funding to do that. But um, yeah. I always think about like that 
bottleneck, or I'm not even sure if bottleneck's the right word, but this kind of a nexus of clearly there's a there's endless issues that you could be involved in. But with if you had unlimited funding, there becomes a problem of how can you do all of them well? You know, and so it's about being able to scale effectively so that you have the right people in the right place and it's not just wasted resources, wasted money and that sort of thing. Or getting, involved, or getting involved maybe in things that you aren't educated enough about to where you just go and spin wheels and create commotion. Yeah, absolutely. And we've had to say no, you know, over the years, either it was beyond our scope or didn't have the impact that was worth our investment. You know, there's a lot of more micro issues we could get involved with that, you know, I shouldn't say micro, but, you know, individually have a very small conservation impact we choose to look more kind of big picture. Again, what value can we bring? We, we've started getting more into the marine debris issue. We installed a, a trash boom on the Mexico side of the border in Tijuana uh, to like a physical device that actually stops trash and plastic before it crosses the border. And then working to try to kickstart uh, recycling culture of recycling in, in Tijuana and in Baja California. That project's funded through the Benioff Ocean Initiative at UC Santa Barbara. And we got this thing installed just before those first rains that we had, um, or the only rains that we've had this year. Um, we spent all last year getting the permits to get this thing installed, build it, um, and then got it installed early January. And so far it's working really effectively, but I think that's kind of an example of, you know, identified a really clear need, thought we have really strong relationships in Tijuana, we haven't done this particularly before, but we think we can pull it off with the right partnerships, uh, raise the money to do it, and then boom, off and running. So we're good at figuring it out. And as we get those new opportunities, we can hire new staff to, to help us with that. So we really invest that you know, into our team. And very interesting. Um, the reason why we wanted to chat today was about the 30, for, 30 by 30 initiative, which apparently is a global initiative. And we've spoken about it on... I spoke with Chaz about it on a podcast and feels like the surf media is touching on it occasionally. And the WSL is the one who's obviously promoting it the most, asking for people to sign up and almost everything else that I've seen outside of the WSL is suggesting that uh, it isn't everything that it's advertised to be. And people are kind of trying to dissuade people from signing up while the WSL is persuading them. So can you help illuminate what is 30 by 30 and uh, whose, whose side should we be on? Great question. Yeah. And then, you know, great opportunity to kind of share, hopefully some insights. Um, there's a lot of assumptions. There's a lot of misinformation and fairly, there's a lot of unknowns about this, but okay. yeah, the 30 by 30 is a global initiative that was launched in 2016 um, by the United Nations convention on biological diversity. And that's, it calls for 30% of the world's land and ocean to be protected by 2030. So it's not just a, an ocean focused movement. And immediately a lot of countries signed on to it. Uh, Belgium, Costa Rica, Germany, United Kingdom, Portugal, um, I think Sweden as well. And, you know, it's to address really two things is massive species extinction, which, you know, scientists are calling the sixth major extinction uh, where we're gonna lose more wildlife than in, in millions and millions of years. And also to um, improve climate resiliency and address climate change and avoid climate catastrophe. Um, you know, a lot of percentage of the world has already been protected and that varies hugely in different parts of the world as well. And that's, I think, where this is going to start. This movement really is looking at what has been protected and how are different states and countries going to contribute to this? Is it 30% of every country in the world needs to contribute 30%? Um, that probably doesn't add up. Um, there's going to be you know, protections of the high seas, for example, that are outside of any federal jurisdiction that are going to require huge intergovernmental uh, cooperation to get that done somehow. So there's a lot of unknowns about this movement. And looking at the United States, we've already protected about 26% of our marine environment. And that might be an underestimate. Um, in Mexico, it's about 11% of their land. And I think about 
23% of their oceans already protected. Australia has protected already 36% of its marine environment. So in a way, they're already there. But what's lacking in a lot of these, even if we're at 30%, um, it's the management and the true protections that are in there. And are we protecting the most important things? You can't just draw a line, a square on a map, and you know that acreage is, is protected. So I got my four-year-old here. That's fine, we can edit. Quick second, buddy. Okay. Yes, absolutely. Um, so, you know, the U so U.S. is about 26%. California, we have various protections already. So California has a statewide marine protected area network uh, that covers about 16% of state waters, more than half a million acres. Um, the levels of protection there are very different. There's some areas that are full closures and you can't do anything in terms of extractions. Um, others, you can fish, even commercial fish for a certain extent. So California's MPA network is, allows for, um, you know, there's still to be human use and, and extraction at a certain level. But the whole 30 by 30 isn't just about, you know, this is, I think, the trigger word for a lot of the, the ones that have kicked back, especially out of WSL's aggressive campaign on 30 by 30. It's not just about fishing. It's also about oil and gas exploration. It's about deep sea mining. You know, I think most surfers could agree they don't want new oil rigs right offshore. Um, but the, the, the fishing particularly aspect of it is a trigger. And understandably, California had a um, kind of a rough process to establish the marine protected areas. Our state managed marine protected areas, there's a lot of kickback um, and a lot of trust was lost through that process that we've spent the last, well, nine years now since that network was established mending those differences, working together, um, trying to get people to understand that this is an adaptive managed network. There can be changes to this, but we need to collaborate in order to get there. So if there's stuff that doesn't make sense, if there's a you know, very low impact, you know, kayak fishing, for example, um, you know, why shouldn't that be allowed in a marine protected area where they allow um, small scale commercial operations or um, you know, fishing from vessels that can actually end up taking more. So, so there's some areas that don't quite make sense. And that's part of the challenge. And that's gonna come with creating protected areas. It's a really challenging process. Um, so in addition to those MPAs in California, there's National Marine Sanctuaries, um, Gulf of the Fairlawns is one, Monterey Bay. Monterey Bay, you know, a lot of these you can fish inside National Marine Sanctuaries. Uh, there's no oil extraction allowed in most of them. There are really protections against that. Deep sea mining. I, uh, Tyler Fox, big wave surfer from Santa Cruz, launched that whole campaign a year or two ago to help stop the cruise ship terminals from entering the Monterey Bay National Marine Sanctuary. Um, so, the, you know, the, the uses aren't always balanced and, and might not always make the most sense. And then we also have national monuments. Um, a lot, one thing a lot of people don't know is that all the rocks and small islands off the California coast are a national monument. Mm. Um, so as no one goes and blows them up or something and for, you know, whatever, but that's been established. National monuments get established through executive order typically. So president says, boom, was the, the Papa, Papa Juana Mokuakea, which is one of the world's largest marine protected areas off Hawaii was established by George Bush in 2006, expanded by Barack Obama. Obama also created a, a Northeast Seamounts National Monument off the East Coast. So there's all these different types of protected areas that we have, even in California. You add them up, maybe we are at 30%. We don't know. Um, maybe we're slightly deficient. Maybe we've protected more than 30%. So the next steps here, and so there was a, I'll back up a second. There was a state bill, Assembly Bill 3030, um, AB 3030 that was introduced February, 2020. And that bill died in Senate in um, October, 2020. So that bill's done. There is no AB 3030. And it really, and the reasons, there was a lot of kickback for that bill. It was a little bit ambiguous. You know, it, it was perceived that it was gonna double and in this whole 30 by 30 movement in California it gets perceived that it's gonna automatically double California's marine protected area network. 
And there's two kind of misunderstandings there. One, in a lot of these MPAs, you can still fish. Along those lines, you know, we want to work and, you know, we're going to work together. We already, Wild Coast already is working with the fishing community. We've done policy together to make policies more, makes make more sense for um, fishing and for conservation in California. Um, and the, the second piece is that there's, it's going to be a process to create this 30 by 30. Whether we expand areas or not, maybe we don't need to, but there's going to be engagement and that's the bill AB 3030 didn't directly call for a collaboration to figure this out. So there was opposition, the bill failed, didn't matter because in January, uh, or in, I'm sorry, in December, Governor Newsom signed an executive order for 3030, that California is gonna contribute to this 3030. And it calls for California's natural resource agency to figure it out basically to come up by 2022 with a plan. Now the plan is really a plan for the plan. So how are we, the plan is how are we gonna create this whatever system of protected areas that represents 30% of our coast, if that's even what it means by 2030. So we're at the very beginning of this process. And I've talked to some of our policymakers in Sacramento that are tasked with kind of figuring this out. And it's clear it's gonna start with you know, taking a good inventory of what do we have protected here? Where are the deficiencies? Are we protecting the most important resources? And then what work needs to be done? And over years, we're going to figure that out. Um, you know, over the next eight and a half years, we're going to figure that out along with countries around the world. Um, Biden also signed an executive order right when he got into office calling for the U.S. to contribute, you know, contribute to this global initiative. So it's going on, you know, not just in California, there's no assembly bill. Um, it's gonna happen somehow, but it calls for a collaboration um, in order for us to get there. So really, you know, I guess that's where we stand. Um, what, what was the WSL asking people to sign? Well, the WSL is just asking really for support for this movement, I think, um, and not really, uh, anticipating the level of kickback that there was, uh, especially in California, and then that kind of trickling outward. Um, and I see a lot of the athletes, you know, are probably, you know, didn't uh, don't understand because it is a complicated process of what this really means. So the the WSL's thirty by thirty is really to galvanize, you know, an interest, a public interest to push this forward and hopefully having these outstanding, you know, surfing athletes be at the forefront of leading that process. That is important. You know, we want spokespeople that really thrive in the ocean and, and it's their livelihood, but we also want to engage tribes, you know, especially in California, San Diego County has more um, tribes than registered, you know, federally recognized tribes in any other County in, in the nation. And those were traditionally tribes that access the coastline, the mountains, the foothills, you know, for the past 200 years have been relegated to these mountainous areas or, you know, inland reservations, yet there's still cultural significance and heritage sites on our coast that, so just for example, we need more tribal voices leading this effort and really getting everybody, you know, all the stakeholders involved. So it's not just about surfing. I think the platform, you know, is, um, has potential, but there's a lot more information that needs to go behind this and it's going to be a slow process. Do you understand what the pushback was? What was guiding the pushback? Absolutely. It's, it's the perception that, um, that we're going to, you know, WSL is advocating and others, you know, it's not just the WSL, as I mentioned, there's nations around the world, including our own now that are pushing for this. Um, but that there's going to be more closures for particularly fishing. Um, and does that feel like a fair concern? Well, it feels like fair concern in the misinformation and misunderstanding and still the legacy of California's MPA process. So I understand where that concern comes from. Um, there's global examples of well-functioning marine protected areas around the world. I've worked on them in the Philippines and Ecuador and California and Mexico. And you know, nowhere is it not challenging to figure this stuff out. 
Uh, there's going to be always concessions. There's going to be concessions on the conservation side. There's going to be concessions on the extraction side. Um, but ultimately, MPA is well-functioning, well-managed marine protected areas work. And so at Wild Coast, we're really considering, well, let's look at what we have in California um, without even thinking about, we don't, let's not even think about expanding anything yet. Let's look at what we have and get a good solid baseline first and see what's working and what's not working. And maybe it's just kind of reconfiguring what we have, or maybe we decide we need to devote more resources into enforcement, or maybe it's into youth engagement or um, signage, very simple stuff. So, you know, there's a lot to be figured out, but I think it's really important that those that got, you know, scared and reactive to this to understand that it's a process and engagement's going to be key, but we need to kind of enter it with an open mind. And that calls, you know, everybody across the board needs to enter this with an open mind and not carry the resentment that the MPA process brought, because this has the opportunity to be a better one and a, and a much more improved process. So you are intelligent, you're well-spoken, and it still takes 20 minutes to kind of explain what's what in this. And I think that the main concern uh, or the pushback that I've seen against the WSL is probably seated in the fact that this is so convoluted and anytime uh, my government has opportunity to kind of uh, reallocate funds inappropriately or whatever, they take advantage of the people. And so this just feels like I'm signing away my rights for the government to pull smoke and mirrors and then close everything down that I want to do and steal the money. That's, that's kind of what the sentiment felt like, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, again, you know, and there's going to be that, that sentiment, um, you know, unfortunately at this day and age, we have to protect pretty much everything we can by protection. Again, I'm not talking about fishing, not just talking about fishing. It's, we have to protect against oil and gas. We have to protect against deep sea mining. We have to protect our tide pools against people in the summertime, pulling every octopus and starfish out of them. You know, it's right. multi-layered what we need to do to get there. And so that's where, you know, the WSL provided this platform, but if people want to get engaged, there's a government process, you know, there's going to be a collaborative process to do it. Unfortunately, it's not the most accessible sometimes. And it's obvious where I need to go to figure out how I can write a letter or make comments on stuff. Um, you know, California's natural resources agency has a lot of kind of sub agencies within there. And that's where I would start poking around at what the process is gonna look like. But even then there's not a lot of information yet. There was one webinar that was hosted earlier this year that really said a lot of what I've said of just that, you know, we don't know what it's gonna look like yet, but we're gonna start with studying where we're at and then come up with a plan of how we're gonna achieve this 30 by 30, whatever that means. So it's still not totally defined, you know, but in, in the perfect world, a scientist would say, and the 30 by 30 initiative was created by an intergovernmental panel of scientists that came up with this number specifically. And they're also calling for 50% by 2050. So, you know, extinctions and climate change are that severe that this is going to ramp up. It's not like we're going to stop reproducing humans on earth and stop eating fish out of the ocean. So these problems are only going to get worse. Um, fishery management is another really important tool. So, you know, certain species take size seasons, a lot of the fishing community will argue that that's sufficient, but we also need to protect places. We need to protect large scale marine places. Again, not for fish necessarily also for fish, but then also the other precious resources that are there that can render these places useless. Um, there's gonna to be tough balances too. You know, the irony is that California, or the US wants to go you know, um, totally renewable at a certain stage in California to really be ahead of renewable energies. Well, that's gonna require things like wind farms. So how does that balance with setting up protected areas and a wind farm offshore, you know, as they do in Northern Europe, there's examples of wind farms. There's a small one in Rhode Island, you know, offshore marine wind farms. You know, there's a whole bunch of concerns there about birds and whale migratory paths and stuff. So all this is gonna to have to be balanced out. It's gonna be extraordinarily comp complicated, but to avoid as much as we can, um, huge extinction of wildlife and our coastlines at risk, you know, and, and coastal infrastructure rendered 
rendered useless because of sea level rise, you know, we got to start working soon. We're already too late, but we can chip away as best we can. It, uh, it feels so daunting to me. I'm glad that we have people like you and Wild Coast in general that are willing to kind of sift through all the bureaucratic complication because I feel like um, I have the same motivation and ambition as you. I just don't know that I could dedicate my life to it because it feels so daunting and almost unsurmountable. Yeah, it does. And that's why, you know, I think, but I think you're already ahead of a lot of people, you know, we're connected to the ocean. So we're kind of immersed in this marine habitat and wildness. And there's a lot of people, most people on this planet that don't either because they live too far away from this stuff or they're not interested in the outdoors or they're in an inner city, or they don't have time because they're working three jobs, or they're, you know, subsistence, you know, hunters and fishermen and and developing nations. So I think we're of the few that really, you know, feel it and understand the the, the power of nature. And, you know, part of what we do at Wild Coast is to try to get those communities that are less um, connected, more connected, so that they care and start that way. And then, you know, let's all together reduce plastic consumption. You know, I think that can easily happen. Like that seems daunting. You hear the horror of there's gonna be more plastic in the ocean than fish. We can probably stop that in our lifetimes. You know, I don't think that's too far out there with the technology of alternative materials. We can probably figure that out. Same with stopping, you know, species extinction and our coastal communities or ecosystems at risk of, of, of sea level rise and climate change. Um, that's a little more daunting, I think requires, you know, it's, it's harder to see those impacts, although they're becoming more and more frequent. Um, we need to get past the sensationalism on both ends. I think that, too. That's so true. So with the W speaking of sensationalism with the WSL, the way that you just explained everything to me now makes me feel like the WSL was, uh, correct in promoting this cause and all and getting behind it and that the backlash was incorrect. Do you have, do you have an opinion on that? Yeah. I mean, I think I would have anticipated the backlash. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, uh, that's a lot of that's not going to go away, but a lot of it can go away with a little bit more information and context, I think. So there's those that, in California, knew the MPA process was really challenging, lost a lot of trust in um, especially nonprofits and conservation scientists, et cetera. Um, and then there's those that just heard from a friend that this is a bad idea. You know, that's unfortunate power of social media in this and that stuff can spread and comments on Instagram posts and stuff can get people to step away like, oh, maybe I shouldn't promote um, this because of the, of the kickback that's coming from my own community. But a lot of that's just the misinformation. So, you know, I think what we want to do at Wild Coast is make it as clear, you know, and palatable to people and be really clear about the process and the steps that we're going to go through here and listen. Um, 2022 is the 10 year review of California's MPA network. And there will be virtual and hopefully in-person forums across the state to talk about, okay, how are these MPAs working? And we're working on you know, f- facilitating that forum. So people feel heard, the right information's getting out, the science on how things are going as much as possible and identify the gaps. To me, that's a real launching point to the 30 by 30. Um, so it's, you know, it's the, the engage, even though we have MPAs in these protected areas already established, the engagement never ends. Yeah. Um, Peter Douglas was a the late coastal commissioner from California and said that places aren't saved, they're always being saved. It requires endless effort to protect these places. Um, Like no day goes by where something doesn't need to be done, whether that's programs, signage, enforcement, monitoring, et cetera. As kind of an expert in the space, somebody who obviously has served their whole life and works for environmental nonprofit, how do you feel about the WSL's peer initiative? Well, I mean, I think it's awesome in that the former ASP never had anything like that. I'm sure there was small give backs here and there. Um, I know there was some good attentions in, you know, you know, um, 
promoting public health clinics in some of these places. And there was money that got into these communities where they had events, but it, there was never like a, a clear philanthropic wing of professional surfing. I think that's really cool. I think they have done a lot of good work already. Um, and, you know, this was trying to bite off a really big issue. And, you know, to me, kudos to them for really going for that. Um, and I look forward to, to hopefully working with them on, on the messaging and, and what this process really means and to keep the WSL engaged, you know, for the next eight and a half years or more as, as we work on 30 by 30. So I think the attention was good. Um, you know, it hopefully opened the eyes. It got us to have this conversation. Hopefully it'll get more people to have conversations about this and, um, you know, we can work to protect our surfing environment and planet together. Do they, do they have the right, um, staff in place to run that type of an initiative? I think so. It's still a small staff, a small team, but, um, you know, they're highly, highly educated, highly motivated, really from kind of diverse backgrounds. Um, and, you know, I, th I think the WSL is not flush with the cash that could make WSL pure next level in terms of, you know, I think, so they really rely on partnerships, um, local partnerships in the areas of their events, which is a great model. Um, I hope it gets more feet. I hope, you know, professional surfing kind of returns if that is a, a moneymaker for them and that those funds can get channeled into WSL Pure to, to have an impact that parallels, you know, these awesome surfing events in these incredible places that, you know, need a lot of help still, you know, even these beautiful areas around the world, whether it's Australia, Tahiti, Brazil, obviously, um, you know, Jeffrey's Bay, they, they need, there's still things to be done in those places, even though it's, you know, they're incredible already. Um, what do you recommend to listeners who, I mean, cause I kind of feel this way, which is uh, it's all too complicated. I don't have time to sift through all the details of every situation, but I would like to be involved. And maybe that means sending money. Maybe it means signing a petition. Um, it feels like we could trust wild coast. How do we get involved with wild coast? What do you recommend to the general listener who feels the same way that I do? Yeah, I think, I think to start with, especially on the 30 by 30 campaign is to take a big step back to the most unbiased information possible. And to me, that comes from the United Nations okay. um, and the convention on biological diversity is what's just set up this 30 by 30 network and looking at really the just, it's more black and white. And, you know, if you just Google 30 by 30, there's going to be 10,000 blog stories and articles. And a lot of them saying the same thing from the conservation side. And a lot of them saying the same thing from more the resource extractive side. Um, but that's a good start to educate oneself. And then um, Wild Coast, our website's wildcoast.org. And we have a lot of resources and information there as well. Um, and then I think in terms of California, keeping up with the natural resources agency, um, Google California natural resources agency. And throughout the year, there's going to be much more information showing up there about this. And then through that, you can also learn about California's marine protected areas and other protections that exist um, and kind of get a better picture of, you know, what are our marine protected areas in California? Oh, I can actually recreationally fish in this one. I thought it was fully closed. Um, San Diego, we have several of those. Our largest, the Swami State Marine Conservation Area, um, you can spearfish inside that. Uh, there's no commercial lobster fishing. So, you know, there's a lot of misinformation there. Just people need to take the time to kind of dive in a little bit get more. Off, get off social media. <laughs> Maybe a little time off social media and a little bit more into the, the hard facts. Yeah, but. I mean, it's um, funny. I try to assess that sometimes because it's like, uh, even though it's a cesspool, it is drawing attention. Like there's no such thing as bad publicity in certain ways. So the fact that we're even having this in-depth of a conversation was because the WSL promoted it and people retaliated against it. So now we're talking about it and getting to, getting to a truth, you know? And that's a really good point. And so I think social media, you see something you don't like rather than just, you know, slandering whatever organization or person on messages that gets you nowhere. It's a lose lose. I've realized that. And watching people that I know in power not getting engaged because they did in the past. And I just, that's a lose. That's, there's no winning there whatsoever. 
but maybe taking that dialogue to the next level, you know, yeah. you don't have to do a podcast about it, but maybe having a conversation in the parking lot about it. I've done that with a lot of my friends at seaside where I've grown up surfing um, that are fishermen that didn't like the MPAs when they're established. And we've worked together and had great conversations. Um, and a lot of them started yeah, with a pissed off Instagram right. post about yeah, exactly. something. So I think that's important. Uh, you know, it is a good introduce the, the topic, um, see what the, you know, the contention is, but then let's look for a solution instead of just being mad at each other. Yeah. Back to your, uh, surf history and background. Were you featured in the Daredevil films? I might've been in one of one of maybe had a wave in one of those. Yeah. I've been I, in a couple, um, C minus grade Great videos. How dare you? Are, Those Teardevil films Teardevil are awesome. Far surpasses. Oh, I'm not talking about Teardevil. That's oh, okay. Seth Elmer section is you know ingrained in my mind to this day. But no, but far worse than that. <laughs> yeah. Gotcha, gotcha. I was trying to think where the footage that I've seen was, but when you said Red Sand, it was like, oh, that's right. I have a stack of magazines here from like that era. I want to go through them and find. Was Cody Steele on Red Sand? Cody was on Red Sand. That's right. Um, Flynn Novak was on yep. Red Sand. Jamie Sterling. Uh, a couple of guys I haven't heard from from in a long time. Um, Max Hoshino, who yep. maybe you heard of, maybe you haven't. He's, I had. He's a doctor now. Oh my gosh. Still ripping so hard. Uh, I went to Europe with him to do some WQSs years ago and people were just blown away. And he brought his biology book because he was applying to medical school on our surf trip and read the entire thing or he's taking the MCATs or something. So the guy wow. is such a nerd and then goes out and just kills it. And he's still doing it to this day. Sandy shows me videos every once in a while. Um, <laughs> that's an unknown surf story. Aspirational. Absolutely. And by the way, good for him for getting out of pro surfing. <laughs> No kidding. Yeah. I think he made the, you know, did one or two contests, probably made the quarters in both of them beating guys that are now on the CT and then, right. Yeah. Making more money. than they are. Um, so for all the articles or I guess the photos too, but the articles that you've written, do you actually keep the magazines? Do you have cutouts? Of them? I have some of them. Yeah. I have, I do have a few. Um, I'm funny. I wrote, I got the pleasure to write for um, a San Diego based surf man called surf shot. That was like, oh yeah, I remember that. In the heyday of, you know, what was this? Probably 2006 ish, 2007. They were perfect bound, you know, 100 pages thick. I was the, you know, associate editor and could just write whatever I wanted. I think they're paying like 15 cents a word, which is actually pretty good. So it's like, I'm going to write a 3,000 word article. And, um, and then it just crashed. That was a fun platform, though. To, to write on right for I feel like did they try to transition to digital they had a little bit of a website presence they did yeah. they did but you know that world just outpaced them so fast but totally you know it's fun to see these little magazines coming back and you know to hear what's happening in Australia um I'd like to see more of that because it's hard to replace print you know I've only so much I think I speak for other people too like it's hard to read a 3,000 word article on on the internet. But. You know what, you know what I'm waiting for somebody to do, and maybe you would know of somebody who already has, but is just um archive all of the magazines digitally. Yeah. Cause be like, amazing. like I, I have physical copies of them and they're so cumbersome, obviously to move around and just to store oh, I know. that it's like, and they make those scanners now that are actually really cheap and good. And again, I agree with you. Who's going to want to read a 3000 word article on your computer screen. However, it would be convenient just to have everything archived conveniently like that. Yeah. Um, that time capsule. I exactly. Wish, who owns surfer magazine now, you know, that's they're sitting on all that stuff and hope they can uh, figure something out that, but yeah, it's, were you talking to Vaughn Blakey about that of the, uh, you know, the time capsule kind of feel of these mags that, you know, from the ads to the, every piece kind of is a snapshot of time, which you don't get digitally because you're always going to get new ads, you know, for an old story. Yeah. Um, there's something special about that. Well, even you, I, I wouldn't have thought about it at, with ads because Vaughn said, you know, this big Maverick swell, we should have that like a time capsule, but you just mentioned ads and you're right. When you said red sand, 
I immediately, my head went to a certain era and style of surfing and what else was in the magazine next to those ads. And yeah, that is weird that we don't have that anymore. I know, I know. Just the the nineties, the late nineties are just going to be lost in our imaginations here pretty soon. Totally. (laughs) Awesome. Well, Hey Zach, thank you so much for taking the time and and also for reaching out and explaining to me, you know, because, uh, I feel like Chaz and I are just me by myself. We'll, we always misstep. We're often incorrect because we're trying to cover a lot of airtime and we're also just kind of touching on things. And, and you also just misspeak when you're riffing off the cuff all the time. And so I always appreciate the opportunity to go back and kind of reset and, you know, sort through things with a more fine tooth comb. So. Yeah. I appreciate the opportunity and, you know, the, the, the thing, the pod, you know, your platforms are great for you know, spreading good information. Um, so maybe we can touch base again as new, new issues on our coastlines arise. There's endless, right? I feel like we could do it. There are Well, let me know. Okay, I will. Right on, well, thanks. David. Thanks again. I'm going through changes now that have just begun under a purple sun there's many reasons we are what we've become i'm going through changes ripping out pages i'm going through changes now Links to everything that we discussed in today's show are available on surfsplendorpodcast.com. And then videos from Spit This Week, from The Grit, and the album Twinsman Review are all up on YouTube. Go to YouTube and search for the channel Surf Splendor. Click subscribe there to make sure that you get notifications for every new video release. And of course, we are giving away that album Twinsmen on Monday. So if you are already a subscriber or if you've donated to this show this month, you are automatically entered to win, but it's not too late if you haven't. Go to our website, click on the subscribe link, and you can set up a $5 monthly donation and uh, potentially win that board. But more importantly, you'll feel great knowing that you're helping archive all of these shows for future listeners and also investing in the future of shows, which past listeners have already done, and that's why we're in existence now. So thank you to everyone for your support. Thank you to our sponsors for additional support, and I hope everybody's getting waves. Southern California is pretty flat right now, but lots of work to catch up on, so we'll focus on that in the meantime. All right? I'll be back on Tuesday with Scott Bass over on Spit, and then next Friday on The Grit with Chaz Smith. And of course, Wednesday, right here on Surf Splendor, I've got a conversation with the Black Sand Surf Kids, as well as Ryan Harris, bringing us up to speed on what's going on over at Earth Tech. So look forward to that next Wednesday on Surf Splendor. I will see you there. Until then, this is David Scales reminding you to get back into the ocean, share some waves, and of course, shred on. I'm going through changes, through all of the strangeness. I'm going through changes now.